This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Financial help for the future of Afghanistan, but will NATO countries be happy to foot the bill? I think there'll be enormous reluctance, uh, Western governments, parliaments, political parties, to fund a continuing civil war, essentially. British and French forces are working closer than ever before on Exercise Joint Warrior, and 30 years on, we hear an untold tale from the Falklands War. NATO defence ministers are continuing talks in Brussels about the future of Afghanistan. There have been calls for financial pledges to fund the Afghan National Army and Afghan police after international combat withdrawal in 2014. The Defence Secretary Philip Hammond told BFBS that Britain is making a financial commitment to Afghanistan's future. We've made some progress um, today. I have uh, announced that the UK will be giving £70 million a year, $110 million. Um, I hope that by making that early commitment, we will encourage other member states to make their commitments early. And by the time we get to Chicago, I am optimistic that we will have uh, a consensus around the funding that's available and we will be able to make an announcement then. Well, I'm joined by BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee and Professor Michael Clark, Director of the Royal United Services Institute. Hello to both of you. Professor Clark, have Britain said it's going to pay? Will other countries do the same, do you think? Uh, some of them will, but uh, not everyone, and we'll wait to, to the Chicago summit until we see what pledges come forward. It's interesting that the Secretary of State said that, you know, we've made an early contribution, we've made a pledge uh, in order to try to uh, re- rattle the tin for the others. But the figures are pretty daunting. I mean, the, the Afghan National Security Forces were due to cost about $6 billion a year. Um, for 325,000, that's unrealistic. Uh, it's been draw- drawn down to about four billion a year to pay for 250,000. But our 110 million dollars is fine, but it only doesn't even get to first base when we think about the amount of money that needs to be raised for the Afghan National Security Forces to be viable after 2014. Christopher Lee, with the global economy as it is, can the West afford it? Um, well, the politicians will argue, or some of the politicians will argue, can we not, you know, can we afford not to do it? Uh, but you've only got to look at the state of the Eurozone, for, for, for example, in continental Europe especially, and see the state of individual economies, and they're uh, members of NATO, members of the ISAF, for example, and they turn around, uh, as they, some of them were doing uh, earlier in this week, when I was in Brussels, and saying, listen, we've got problems, we've got elections, how are you going to feel when you say, well, look, we, we're out of uh, out of Afghanistan now, let them get on with it, or whatever. But the important thing, another question that's being raised, is, okay, the UK is putting in, uh, what is it, 110 mi- millions, Mike? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's about 2.5%, I've just worked it out, it's about 2.5% of the total that, they, that will be needed from all sources for the Afghan security forces. And the important thing is how much control you've got over your don- donation. That is the sort of thing that is going to sway cabinets who, or treasuries that have got to cough up the money. The control being exactly what? That it doesn't go into the wrong coffers in the wrong place? Oh, in a suitcase straight off to Geneva, as a lot of donations do. I mean, there is a huge and a realistic suspicion that a lot of money that's given uh, goes into the wrong places. 
But with Afghanistan uh, having to defend it, having to put in institutions, developing, for example, that middle management of what I call company commander level in the, in, in the army, there's a realization that you've actually you've actually got to do the business. Now, if Britain's going into this so-called uh, uh, sort of Sandhurst in Kabul, um, then it's going to have a bigger say and a bigger interest in what sort of money goes and where it goes, who spends it, and who controls who spends it. Stay with us, gentlemen. A uh, little earlier, I spoke to Ahmed Rashid, author of Pakistan on the brink, the future of Pakistan, Afghanistan and the West. I asked him if he thought NATO countries would be able to sustain the Afghan national security forces after combat troops leave. Well, it really depends what happens. I mean, if the Americans leave Afghanistan in a state of civil war, as it is right now, and the war does not wind down in some way as a result of talks between the Americans and the Taliban, um, I think there'll be enormous reluctance, uh, Western governments, parliaments, political parties, to fund uh, um, a, a, a continuing civil war, essentially. Um, if there is a peaceful settlement in Afghanistan by 2014, um, and the Taliban come into some kind of power-sharing deal with the government, um, and the violence is dramatically reduced, I think it'll be much easier for go Western governments to sell the idea of continued funding for Afghanistan um, from their own parliaments and people. You mentioned those conditions that would be necessary. How inevitable do you think civil war is post the withdrawal of combat troops? Well, I think everything is hanging by a thread. Um, these uh, American Taliban talks that have been going on for nine months or so uh, are blocked at the moment. Um, I hope they, the Americans can unblock them as quickly as possible. Um, but there are divisions within the U.S. administration between the um, uh, Defense Department and the State Department, which are still unresolved and clearly which will affect you know, NATO also. Um, and um, uh, there's still a, a, a deep reluctance by elements in the U.S. administration to talk to the Taliban. I don't see any way out of this quagmire except to do so. And to secure the Afghan army, um, the Afghan army needs a, a peaceful settlement. I don't think the Afghan army can be expected to fight the, the, the kind of war and the intensity that um, the Americans and the British and others have been fighting the last few years. What do you make of the latest coordinated attacks by insurgents in Kabul? Well, you know, I mean, the Americans have been putting out this message that we, we want to talk, but we want to fight at the same time. And I think the Taliban have now replied with the same kind of message. You know, we'll talk, but we'll fight also at the same time. And um, I think the other the other internal reason was possibly... Um, clearly, they want to put pressure on, on, on the Americans um, and on the Karzai government. But the internal factor, I think, was also important that they have, I mean, there have been reports of them, uh, Taliban commanders on the ground, questioning the whole idea of why are some Taliban leaders sitting in Qatar negotiating, um, you know, in a five-star hotel while we are camped out here facing American bombs. And I think what the Taliban leadership wanted to show by this attack uh, was that, you know, um, fighting was still very much on the cards. Beyond what can be done with resumed, if they are, talks in Qatar and within the country itself in Afghanistan, how much of an impact can American relations have with other countries in the region to secure Afghanistan's future, for example, Pakistan and Iran? 
Well, at the moment, obviously, this looks very grim because uh, the the relationship with Pakistan has only just restarted. They have to negotiate now the opening of the road again to supply uh, Western forces from the port of Karachi. Uh, they have to negotiate the drones. They have to negotiate money and aid. They have to negotiate a number of things, and um, we don't know which way this will go. Um, in Iran, of course, there's no there's no dialogue whatsoever. And um, so actually the regional situation is looking much worse than when President Obama came in. Um, it's, it, it, it's going to need a very massive effort to bring the regional countries together. With all of these things that you've talked about that need to be done to secure any lasting peace in Afghanistan or at least stop the civil war, do you think that the timetable for the withdrawal of combat troops is realistic? Well, you know, the, the the problem with this timetable is that it's being set not by the military needs on the ground and the political needs on the ground, equally important, but they're being set in an arbitrary fashion by what the election cycle says or what certain governments want uh, uh, at home. I mean, what is what is now um, I- I important, and, and the Afghans find this very depressing, that their future actually depends on now what depends on not what happens on the ground, but what is happening in London, Paris, Washington, etc., and, and, and political needs at home. Um, but to be realistic, there is no doubt this war has gone on too long. It's, it's 10, 11 years too much money involved, too expensive, uh, there's a recession in the West, this is bound to happen. Um, and so, I mean, there's, there's no point in kicking against the pricks and trying to, um, uh, trying to deny the fact that, you know, this withdrawal will, ha- will happen. It will happen. And the question is, what, you know, it's a bad job, but what can we do to make this bad job um, uh, look a bit better? And what do you think Afghanistan will look like in five years' time? I can't predict what Afghanistan will look like tomorrow, leave alone five years' time. Ahmed Rashid talking to me earlier. Professor Michael Clark, what do you make of what he said there? Is the key to continue to talk with the Taliban? Yes, and it always has been. I mean, one of the, the earliest mistakes that was made in Afghanistan back in uh, the end of 2001 was to impose a, a, a victor's peace. Um, the Taliban were kicked out. But anyone who knew about Afghanistan knew that the Taliban represented a certain sort of southern Pashtun nationalism and that that had to be taken account of in creating a new um, Afghan political community and that that, that they were left out. Um, you need, you always need to talk to your adversaries in this situation. So fight and talk is is, is a very honourable tradition. It goes back a long way, um, and it is regrettable that serious talks with the Taliban have have waited so long. And and in a way, they've only begun when the West has already fatally weakened its position by announcing its withdrawal dates. It, it, you know, it, we we couldn't have got this more wrong from a political point of view if we tried. In terms of the civil war, Christopher, that. Um Ahmed was talking about uh, now and predicting that it may well continue. Just talk about what America could possibly do to put influence on neighbours like Pakistan. Well, there's uh, an interesting point with um, what Rashid was talking about. He said the future, Afghan, Afghans feel you know, their future depends on what's going on, in, he said, in, in London, Washington and Paris. Also, it depends entirely what's going on in Pakistan. And Pakistan has always been 
always been the key element of this because, for example, they have the border uh, with the support for uh, for, for Taliban, so, Pakistan Taliban, as well as Taliban in Afghanistan. So how might this, uh, this civil war actually play out if it were to continue? Well, in, it, it's getting to a point where people, in certainly in, in the Pentagon, uh, are now saying, come 2014, 2015, the civil war is stepped up the southern Taliban, if you wish, as a general term, the Pashtun, take on and do unfinished business in the north with the old warlords in the north. That is the huge civil war. Now, there's a fellow over at the United States uh, Naval Graduate School who is starting to teach, with the Pentagon's permission, this further scenario. And that war then brings in Pakistan, and then it brings in India, and you begin to see the danger there of a, a, a war by proxy between India and Pakistan. Now, that is the huge, uh, huge and, and, and frightening scenario if, if, if that ever happened. Um, it's interesting that the, uh, the, the Indians are sort of uh, starting to test um, uh, new ICBMs. It's all the in that... testing that's reporting today, yeah. That's uh, Agni, Agni 5, which, uh, which if you translate it means fire god. Uh, but it, it, it is all this... It is all this sort of atmosphere in which we are now having to say to people, as they are today in Brussels, uh, the NATO meeting, and then they go to Chicago, they're having to ask uh, other countries, how will you help Afghanistan maintain some sort of stability? How much money will you put in? How many times will you have to go to your own parliaments, if you have parliaments, and say we need more money and can you do it? Big ask, a very, very big ask for the Chicago summit. Uh, Michael Clark, uh, the continued funding, uh, at what point do you think um, international uh, countries will say we cannot continue to fund this if peace is not established and the uh, civil war averted? Yeah, well, quite quickly, I think. The the United States has obviously got a a, a major role to play in providing uh, probably the majority of the funding that the security forces will need, but they will certainly be looking for contributions from other countries uh, and other countries in the region in whose interest it is that Afghanistan should in some way succeed uh, when the drawdown takes place. But, I mean, what Christopher was saying was absolutely right. The, the, the danger we face is the danger we might have faced in 2001 of a, of a north-south civil war in, in Afghanistan, which leaves a sort of Pashtun heartland, which covers Afghanistan as well as Pakistan, a southern Pashtun heartland, um, which has no uh, recognizable borders at all. We're halfway to that point already. And the amount of money that goes into the National Security Forces um, will be judged against the ability of Afghanistan to prevent that scenario playing out within three or four years. And yet the, this timetable for the withdrawal of combat troops remains. Um, I suppose it's really a moot point now to say whether or not it's being rushed or not. It's just mm. going to happen regardless. It is going to happen, and all the indications are, and I, you know, I, I regret saying this at all, but I mean, the re- indications are that there is now the beginning of, of a rush for the exits. Um, when uh, Mrs. Gillard, the Australian Premier, said this does not represent a rush for the exits, that's precisely why she said it. It's you know, politicians always say the day before devaluation that there will be no devaluation. When they know they're rushing for the exits, they always claim that they're not. Uh, in terms of the practical side of the withdrawal of combat troops, uh, NATO today is. Dis- 
discussing in Brussels, the role that Russia might play. Just talk about, Michael, what, what they could do and why they're so important to this. Well, the Russians are very important because of the, um, the, the, the transport uh, and logistics lines uh, into Afghanistan, but also uh, the, the Russians understand Afghanistan for all sorts of, of interesting reasons, but their cooperation um, has always been more important in Afghanistan than we've generally speaking acknowledged, and the, the press doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about this. But, I mean, as the withdrawal takes place, which will be a dangerous time, uh, it will provoke battles because <clears throat> the Taliban and other warlord groups will want to make it appear that they have thrown NATO countries out, not that NATO countries have decided to leave. And so the things will get more dangerous as the withdrawal gets closer. And for that, uh, Russian uh, corridors and practical logistical help will turn out to be quite important. Christopher? One quick thing on Russia. In December 1979, 19th of December, they invaded Afghanistan. They did do, because they were frightened, of what the Muslim uprisings could do in their own border areas. Russia is still frightened of what could happen when the withdrawal takes place. So it's not just a high Moscow-Washington political scene. It is a very real fear where the Russian generals say, you know what happened last time? We got chased out after 10 years. Well, now let's uh, hear from our reporter in Camp Bastion, James Hurst. Uh, James, this week you've been to see an Afghan local police checkpoint in Nari Siraj. Tell us some more about that. Yeah, this is a new checkpoint in uh, an area of Helmand that isn't yet in the transition process. You know, we've seen Lashkagar, we've seen Nad Ali go into transition and uh, large parts of those have now completed transition. Nari Saraj South, very rural. What's interesting about this, because there have been plenty of Afghan police checkpoints that have been built, is that what's happened is a, a British checkpoint just down the road has been closed down. They're opening up this new checkpoint. It will be the Afghan local police who run that. The Brits will partner them for a while. But actually, in this area, there was a real drop-off of violence just after Christmas. Now, it could well have been something to do with the weather as much as anything else. Uh, the, uh, the British forces, the ISAF forces there say, you know, they have also fought hard against the, uh, against the insurgents. But this drop-off has given them the space to build up these local security forces. And certainly in, in, in this area, a very rural rather than urban area, they're seeing those local forces providing local intelligence and also a connection with those local people as, as the kind of the key step forward. You know, the bottom end of the Afghan national security forces that we're talking about paying for in the future, but actually potentially providing a vital link. They think that's part of what has kept the insurgents away. Can you tell us a bit more about the Afghan local police because we hear a lot about the Afghan national police but not so much about the local force yeah I mean you don't hear the phrase Afghan national police here much anymore you hear Afghan uniform police but essentially they are a more professionalized almost paramilitary force they're a fighting force they are trained up you know to be a fighting force the Afghan local police they carry weapons but you know I've heard people describe them as a ragtag bunch or even a, a frankly a professionalized neighborhood watch Local elders are involved in vetting, but, but despite this kind of fairly ragtag image, um, I, mean, I was speaking to the, the CEO of Five Rifles yesterday and said, well, have we got an army handing over to a professionalised neighbourhood watch? And he said, well, actually, if we have, is that a bad thing? These people don't have to be Chuck Norris because they understand the people and actually the people understand them. And the key thing, as I say, is it comes back to bringing in that intelligence, that information, which ISAF provides from high technology, 
from eyes in the sky, but those eyes in the sky aren't going to be there after 2014. Michael Clark, a professional neighbourhood watch, is that where the future Im- investment should be going, do you think, to those kind of local police units? Yes. I mean, the, the Afghan National Police, is, I mean, as James said, it has a very bad reputation uh, historically with the Afghans, and, and their training hasn't really come to much um, in the last few years. And I think it's clear that um, a, a more muscular sort of gendarmerie is what we're talking about, is probably what Afghanistan needs. And, and although that would raise all sorts of, of questions in Western societies and Afghan society, it is acceptable and it is accepted. I mean, people, when, when these uh, um, surveys are, are, are conducted in Afghanistan on a pretty regular basis, people always say they really want some security ahead of most of the other things that they also want, uh, ahead of infrastructure and development. It's this sense of insecurity. It doesn't affect most people in Afghanistan, but it affects the people who matter in the southern provinces. Michael Clark, stay with us, and uh, James Hurst in Camp Bastion. Thank you very much. Sit Rep with Kate Still to come, we hear an untold story from a Falklands veteran, how he landed on an Argentinian ship and got a free cup of coffee. BFBS Sit Rep. So, what progress is Britain making in building closer military links with France? It's now 18 months since David Cameron signed a treaty with the French President Nicolas Sarkozy, which aims to do just that. This week, Exercise Joint Warrior got underway in Scotland, involving the Royal Navy, the Army and the RAF, alongside other NATO allies. And though it happens every two years, this year's seems to cement the relationship with France. Tim Cooper reports. In the heather of a Scottish hillside high above Stranraer, local media photographed 16 Air Assault Brigade personnel staking out the DZ drop zone. Gentlemen, could you walk that way so you're in shock? The C-130 flying, releasing 20 paratroopers from each side of the fuselage via its rear door. Kit dangling below, they descend quickly to the ground. For 16 Air Assault Brigade, this parachute insurgent returns them to their core business, Op Herrick being their primary focus since their first deployment to Afghanistan in 2006. Captain Colin Wood, the brigade's intelligence officer. Afghanistan absolutely has been you know, fulfilling and, and professionally very, very rewarding. Um, but I think that brigade will be pleased to get back to their bread and butter rule with the parachuting, which you've seen going this morning with 120 paratroopers from 3Para. So you know, great news for the brigade and, and a great opportunity to exercise. 16 Air Assault Brigade section of Joint Warrior operates around MOD West Fru near Stranra. The exercise is based on a dispute between fictional countries and a NATO-style operation to bring stability to the region. A jigsaw of interlinked exercises like this are taking place across Scotland, in the air, on land and at sea. That's copy Dogfish 2. Is, uh, is it parachutes just from uh, one aircraft? And which Watching this conversation, an officer from 11 Parachute Brigade. They're a French unit and while Joint Warrior has always been multinational, this French involvement takes it to a new level. It's very important to have this kind of uh, cooperation with the uh, UK Army. Lieutenant Colonel Bruno Helui, 11 Parachute Brigade. We have a close partnership with uh, 16 Air Assault Brigade and this is the first uh, main uh, exercise when we can work together in uh, the headquarters and with uh, commando on the ground. This appears to be the realisation of the much-lauded treaty pledging closer cooperation between France and the UK militarily. In November 2010, the Prime Minister and French President committed to pull certain areas of defence development, share some resources, such as maybe aircraft carriers, and ultimately set up a joint 9,000-strong force. Lieutenant Colonel Halloui once more. 
We are useful to work in NATO framework. That's why it's not so difficult to work together in this, case, in this kind of operation. There is a lot of uh, little details that are different between France and the British. But uh, with this kind of uh, exercise, we can uh, find the way to work together. A French C-160 lands at West Frew, depositing British 16 Air Assault Brigade troops partnership in action. Deputy CO of the brigade, Colonel Jacko Jackson. I mean, we are the focus for the moment uh, as regards the land forces of developing that uh, French-UK roadmap, which has got high-level political and um, defence support behind it. So, yeah, taking that on with our partners, the 11 French Para Brigade, is a, is a critical part of what we're about. Joint Warrior continues, but this small phase of it in isolated southern Scotland has been hailed as a key waypoint for the UK and France in developing genuine interoperability. That was Tim Cooper reporting. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, um, how many of these kinds of exercises are there and what kind of progress has been made in cooperating with the French? There's quite a bit of progress at the at the exercise level. I mean, these are not difficult to set up because uh, you know, professionals at the operational level can always link together. So we heard there, you know, we, we have a Hercules C-130 and the French came in with a C-160, which is like a cut-down Hercules with British paratroopers on board. Absolutely fine. That's, that's easy. The thing about the um, Anglo-French relationship now following the uh, Treaty of 2010, which was very ambitiously worded, is that it's hard to find new capabilities which are in which are in place or likely to be in place in the next five years that wouldn't already have existed you know at the higher level we say well what difference is this treaty really making of course it's useful if they exercise together and they're doing this in fairly small groups at low levels but is there anything that will make a fundamental difference to either of our forces out of this treaty and with the possible exception of some real cooperation in the nuclear field funnily enough there isn't very much in the conventional field that you can point to that this treaty is is really generating uh, and Christopher, uh, what difference could a new French president make to all of this? Um, to this bit, no, because the crucial thing would be that might, might add on to that is that you actually need a permanent joint command. But on Monday, or Sunday rather, is the first round of the French presidential elections. If Mr Sarkozy doesn't make it from there to the next stage, which is May the 2nd, there'll be a whole different mindset in France. That mindset in France is taken into NATO councils, is taken into the EU councils. And so attitudes to join cooperation, what President Obama calls the cooperation of the willing, or the coalition of the willing, can start to change because what the French are voting on on Sunday... And it looks as if uh, Sarkozy could lose because he could be 16 points a, a, a adrift. What they're voting on is what Bill Clinton voted on. It's the economy, stupid. It's not Afghanistan. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Unusual tales from the Falklands War emerged for the first time this week at a reunion of veterans at RNAS Yeovilton. Among them, that of Rick Fox, who was, as a 23-year-old pilot with 845 Squadron, was given a week's notice to head to the South Atlantic. He told our reporter Charlotte Cross what happened when he was given orders to fly a team onto an Argentine hospital ship suspected of running ammunition into Port Stanley. We were asked to uh, go and land on, I think it was either fearless or intrepid for a briefing, which we, we received. And we were told there was a, uh, an Argentinian ship that they thought might be running ammunition into Stanley. It was under a Red Cross uh, marking as a hospital ship. 
called the Bahia Parizo. Um, so we loaded up uh, a team that could investigate the ship once they got on board, have a look at what's going on, some marines, um, and then we flew off as a single aircraft heading sort of southeast past Goose Green and some islands out to the south of the Falklands searching for the ship. So we were a single aircraft, very low level, and it was where it was briefed to be. Um, we approached alongside and they started to march us onto the back, so we decided to land on. Uh, they offered us coffee, the team did its inspection, um, and then we departed. So it was a, a, an interesting experience. It's quite strange though, isn't it? Sort of mer mingling with the enemy in the middle of a, of a war. It was a yeah, bizarre experience, but uh, to be honest, they were very accommodating. The coffee was good. I think there was a, an interest in both sides, if you see what I mean. Um, but yeah, we were sort of semi-nervous. Um, but we were joined a little bit later on by a, a seeking from 846 Sister Squadron just to make sure things were okay. So an interesting experience. An extraordinary tale of Rick Fox from 845 Squadron. Uh, Christopher, you're in charge of advising BBC News during the Falklands War as to what they could and couldn't report for operational security reasons. Um, how much media control and indeed spin is there during a war? Oh, I remember the then permanent undersecretary, he's the senior civil service, the Sir Humphrey of the MOD. He was briefing newspapers, what was then Fleet Street and the BBC and ITN, um, about the type of assault that they could expect. And he was doing this in order that they would report it, then the Argentinians would say, oh, that's what they're going to do, it's been leaked. I mean, he was straightforward lie. I mean, I say that over his sort of his corpse. Um, you know, he, he was lying deliberately. It was, a, it was a decision that was taken to try and confuse the enemy. And one of the difficulties, I had to turn to the then editor of uh, the BBC News, a guy called Larry Hodgson, I said, don't run it. And he said, but everybody else is running it. You know, as you know, in journalism, if everybody else has got it, it must be hmm. true. Hmm. But that was the sort of thing that was going all the time. But by the way, I remember this landing on of the hospital ship. And one of the backroom discussions that we had was the status of a hospital ship. Uh, and can it be used for anything else but as a hospital ship? And how do you know? How do you, what do you suspect? And what is your intelligence pictures, your intelligence analysts tell you about what else you can see on the main decks, for example, that may mean it's being used mm. for something else? That took two days to sort out. Uh, let's have a look ahead now to next week. Uh, briefly, uh, Professor Michael Clark, just tell us what you've got your, on your agenda at RUSI next week. Oh, lots of things. But uh, on the defence side, we're looking obviously at the carrier issue um, because at some point the Prime Minister is going to have to make a, an announcement that he's reversing the decision that the government took in 2010 on the aircraft to put on the carriers and going for the uh, F-35B variant, that's almost certain. We're looking at the fact that the MOD is completely clammed up at the moment because of the May elections. I think Downing Street won't um, allow MOD to do anything until after the elections. And there we must leave it. Professor Michael Clark, thank you for your time. Christopher Lee, thank you for yours as well. We'll be back the same time next week. Thanks for listening to SITREP. Bye-bye for now.